Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Hope you are all doing very well. It's good to see you here this morning. Um, last Sunday was Easter. You probably don't know about that. It was a—it's kind of a big deal for Christians. Um, and unfortunately, there was another tragedy um, in Sri Lanka. There was uh, some bombings, and uh, a good number of people passed away uh, on on Easter. Um, this is the third mass shooting at a place of worship in the last six months um, in the Western world. Um, yesterday, the last day of Passover, synagogue. Um, there was a shooting there as well. And so it is a it's an interesting Sunday for me. My mind is my mind is in a couple of different places. Um, one in terms of kind of grief and just what a weird world, what a what a kind of a upside down world sometimes. And then and two even coming here, Lindsay was driving, I was I was reading about the the news yesterday on my phone and in the juxtaposition of me feeling safe coming to worship. You know, I mean, anything can happen anywhere, but, but, but feeling protected. This is not something that comes to my mind, even after news like that. I don't, I'm not worried. I don't, I don't feel fear in that manner. Um, and uh, so all of this is happening this, this week after the Easter tragedy. Um, the Miriam Islamic Center, which is the nearest mosque to us geographically, reached out to me uh, and wanted to offer support and things of that nature. Um, and then they asked if they could come and bring flowers and cards to our community. And so they were here this morning, and I'm, I want to send their message uh, to you. The flowers in the hallway from the Carenza are from them. Um, <clears throat> I don't know where they're shopping, but they're getting these awesome big cards. Um, their their community's interesting. Uh, it's a little similar to ours. Their mom, the kind of version of pastor, is 30 years old. So, you know, has no idea what he's doing. Um, way too young. Um, this this knows from him. <clears throat> Ahmad Khan, he says, We're deeply saddened and hurt by the recent tragedy on Easter. We stand in solidarity with all of humanity as fellow members of the Abrahamic faith tradition. We grieve with your grief from your friends at the Miriam Islamic Center. Know that we're here for you. And then this second card is from the youth of their community. And it's got a lot of messages. I'll just pick a couple here, <coughs> kind of randomly. We're here for you. Um, the Muslim community stands in solidarity with you. Um, we're against the events that took place. We empathize with you. Know that we're here for you. Um, our, our whole families are with you every step of the way. Um, you're covered in our prayers. On behalf of Islam, we stick with you and support you. Uh, I just want to let you know all of us are here to love you. Um, tragedy brings people together, and this bond of love and compassion is strong, and our prayers will be with you, that God will protect and love you. Um, you have our prayers for your grief and for all those who are hurting because of this tragedy. On and on the, the messages go like this. 
the cards will be in the hallway if you'd like to, to <coughs> look at them further. Um, it's a really moving moment for me. It's a really touching thing for me. It is an interesting response to a tragedy. Uh, if I'm being honest, it's the first thought that came into my mind from yesterday's event was not to look up the nearest synagogue and to go and just say, hey, we love you. And we're supporting you. If you need anything, let us know. We're praying for you, that type of thing. Um, and uh, so I, I felt like it was a really meaningful show of support and love. Um, and it's interesting to me how sometimes you find Christ or you see examples of Christ and, and, and his love in unexpected places. And you've got to always be open to that. You've got to always be open to where God is and where God's moving, where God is revealing himself. Um, and I was already planning on this, and I'm, I'm happy for it. Uh, I want to preach that out of the book of Leviticus. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Leviticus. If that doesn't excite you, nothing that I say this morning will. The reason I say I, I, I'm happy about it is Leviticus is a book of the Bible that the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith all hold as sacred. So the text we'll be reading this morning is one that... Um, is, is a commonality between these three faith traditions. It's one that all three claim to be formed by and be shaped by. Um, we'll see it's one of the most important texts in the entire Bible, in the Old and New Testament, for you and I as Christians. The response from the, the Miriam Center um, was interesting, because as I was thinking through this, this text this week, um, we'll, we'll see what it's about. Um, I was thinking through what Christians are known for. Uh, what, what, Christian, the, the, what the perception is of Christians in the world, in the Western world, if you went out to you know, the, the city and you just ask people on the street what, what are Christians like. You know, people have done this work. They've done the surveys. They've done this. The answers are not good. We're not known for good stuff. Um, we're known for, very famously, what we're against. Um, we're known for being against homosexuality and against abortion. And if you ask someone who's not a Christian to describe what Christians are, those are two of the answers you're going to get fairly consistently. Um, no love for Jesus. No love for Jesus' mission or purpose or the kingdom, bring heaven on earth, anything like that. Some, some evils we've identified or some in our community have identified and have chosen to be very vocal about, and, and, and we've become known by them. In fact, the, the last big widespread study um, said there's three big impressions people have of Christians who are not Christian, anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. And we've all probably thought this of Christians ourselves at some point, right? Like, okay, you're a little judgmental, uh, you're a little hypocritical, um, this is a, a, a situation that is uh, in need of a solution. Um, this is, I think, a misreading of a big idea. So, so one of the things Christians have latched onto that in part leads us to this posture of being against things more than we're for things, of being judgmental at times, hypocritical at times, is the idea of holiness. 
Christians often claim holiness as justification for some of these stances and postures and ways of being in the world. And we're, we're starting a sermon series today called Christian Ease, and it's these terms and ideas that Christians use that perhaps we don't understand as well as we think we do, or perhaps we need to have a new lens on it. You know, it's interesting, there's a lot of sacred words in our faith tradition, and as Christianity is less of a cultural monopoly, less people in our culture are familiar with these words. So I teach, and I commonly have to tell students who Moses is. I mean, I'll be talking, and I'll just kind of throw away comment about Moses, and I'm sorry, who's, who's Moses? This is, this is something that wouldn't have happened 50 years ago, right? 100 years ago. People are less familiar with the lingo, with the basic stories, things like that. And then two, something happens where even Christians sometimes misunderstand their own sacred words and traditions. Sometimes this is just over-familiarity. Um, you can use a word correctly and hear it often, and yet, if asked to define it, struggle to find those words. I see this with students a lot, too. And holiness, I think, is one of these concepts. In fact, today I'm, I'm going to suggest that the, the Western evangelical tradition has largely missed the ball completely when it comes to understanding what holiness is and means. Um, and I want to do that by looking at the foundational text for this. It's an important topic, and I think it's a beautiful topic, and I think it's a topic that leads us to Jesus and to be more like Jesus. And so Leviticus 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. If, if you're reading closely along with us, you're going to see why this is an important chapter. You'll see where else perhaps you see it in Scripture. You'll see perhaps its importance to Jesus. Leviticus 19, we'll pick up in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This phrase right here in verse 2 is the kind of foundational phrase of God's character towards his people and his expectations of his people's character in return to him. You should be holy, Why? Because I'm holy. Every one of you, he says, shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So then he starts talking about things we're going to do correctly, or should do correctly. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after. Pay attention, all you mess this stuff up. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. I'm joking. We don't do this. It's eaten at all on the third day. It's tainted. It won't be accepted. Everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. I know the first two verses, I had your attention. And then this last section, you're like, I'm lost again. What are, we, what are we talking about? Why are we doing this? Don't worry. Verse 9, we're back into our comfort zone. You might have a little heading above that, the passage, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, I can do language like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you should not reap your field right up to the edge, neither should you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You should not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You should leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Many people miss actually how radical God's 
economic justices in the Old Testament. It's argued historically whether the Jewish people ever enacted some of these laws or instructions from God, but it's, it's very clear that they're here. So, for example, in the Old Testament, interest is seen as a very, very evil thing. Which is interesting. It's, this is way before capitalism is a thing, right? And, and the ancient scriptures, God speaking through them, seem to have already noticed in the human heart the ability to devise a strategy to gain power and money based on someone else's need. To manipulate generosity, in a sense. And God says, don't do this. And then, you know, my favorite is, just in case these things happen anyways, and there's loopholes, right? Every seven years, we all go back to a blank slate. Now, I have called every one of my credit card companies and read them these passages. Let me tell you, they are not holy. They are not respecting (laughs) these, these jubilee instructions, these jubilee laws. But whatever this, this holiness is, it's leading people to, to be very radically for the poor, for those in need. You should not steal, he says, verse 11. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. It's somewhat of a modern concept for people now to look out for the interests of those who are disabled. It's actually pretty ancient. You shall not curse the deaf. Don't put stumbling blocks before the blind. Verse 15, do no injustice in court. Don't be partial to the poor. Or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall go around, um, you shall not go around as a slander among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And then verse 18, we'll stop here, just pay attention. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. And does this sound familiar? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19 is a foundational passage for what it means to be God's people for the Old Testament and the New Testament. For Jesus, it seems, Leviticus 19 is one of the more important chapters that informs his preaching, his theology. Verse 2, be holy for I am holy. This is the verse that Jesus is riffing on in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember this. There's a line in there. It makes us uncomfortable. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, it's, it's interesting that he doesn't use the Greek word for holy and instead uses what we translate as perfect there. But it's very clear this is what he's echoing. And then if you remember again, Jesus is once asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he Quotes from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. First Peter, writing to the early Christian community, 
quotes Leviticus 19, verse 2, to instruct them on how they should be living. He says, be holy, for God is holy. And he repeats himself, as it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Whatever holiness is, it's important. In one form or another, it appears more than a thousand times in our Bible, the Old and New Testament. It has been used to describe things. You can call things holy. It's used to describe activities. An activity can be holy. It can be used to describe a place. A mountain can be holy in the Scriptures. A ground can be holy in the Scriptures. It can be used to describe people. In fact, in the New Testament, the main designation for the people of God, the people of Jesus, is literally just the Greek word for holy. We translate it as saint, holy one. But it's just holy. Who are the people of God? They're the, they're the holy. We're described that way. And then most importantly throughout the scriptures, it's used to describe God. God is described as holy over and over and over and over again. In fact, it's, it seems to be the main designation for God. Um, it's applied to all three persons of the Trinity at different times. As Christians, we believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, if, if you remember um, in Isaiah 6, in a very famous passage, God reveals himself to Isaiah, and there are um, these angelic beings, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then at the end of our scriptures in Revelation, John has a revelation of God, and there are these living creatures who day and night never cease to declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Whatever God is for the scriptures, he's holy, holy, holy. This is an important theme. The Father, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, is called the Holy One of Israel 31 times, many of them in Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel. The Son is called Jesus, the Holy One of God, once by a demon and, and once by his disciples. The Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit 93 times. It's a, it turns into a personal name, a proper name. Have we ever questioned this? Have we ever wondered why it's the Holy Spirit and not the powerful spirit, peaceful spirit, or just spirit? This adjective is used to describe God. Um, now, it, it's used to describe all kinds of things. We're going to focus this morning on its use when it's talking about God and his people. This be holy for I am holy. And then the, the list of things that go on. Um, very, very commonly, this is how holiness is presented. It's presented almost as the opposite of God's love. It's like the counterbalance to grace and mercy. When I was a kid growing up, this is how holiness was presented to me. The reason God was disgusted with me as a sinner was because of his holiness. Now, the reason Jesus came was because of his love. But Jesus had to come because he was holy. There's a verse in Habakkuk that, that people take from it, a, a, a phrase that's very common, that God's so holy he can't look on sin. Now, that verse in Habakkuk doesn't use the word holy, and the verse doesn't say that either. There's a lot of big problems with that entire idea, but... We can do that a different sermon. It's a very common, it's a very common conception. Holiness is described as God's separateness from creation. It's the gap between God and creation. One just in terms of being. 
So he's eternal, and we're not. He's all-powerful and infinite, and we're not. And then two, it often takes on the connotation of moral purity. God is sinless. He's righteous. He's perfect. Whereas you and I are broken and evil and ugly and at times disgusting. It's holiness that is often presented as the scary part of God. And it's holiness that is often what leads us to think deeply about discipline, self-righteousness, purity. It's teachings of holiness that teach us to separate us from other people instead of drawing closer to them. It's holiness that tempts us, I think, to be judgmental, at least holiness presented as this. Again, you ask people what are Christians like, and a phrase they'll use from our language, they're holier than thou. So, I mean, literally, we do believe God is holier than thou, but we project that kind of onto ourselves at times, and people rightly, rightly don't, don't take kindly to that. Um, we're known for what we're against, not what we're for. Um, now, the reason people define holiness this way, let me give you two official definitions. Um, this is from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Holiness denotes separateness or otherness of God from all creation. The Hebrew word for holy in its fundamental meaning contains the note of that which is separate or apart. The second one, Millard Erickson in Christian theology, the Hebrew word for holy means marked off or withdrawn from common and ordinary use. The verb from which it is derived suggests to cut off or to separate. This is, this is why they come up with this meaning. It's been the common meaning for the past 500 years or so, particularly in the Western evangelical world. When you see this word holy, it means cut off and separate. And here's how they came to this understanding of what this word means. You can trace its family lineage in Hebrew, and it goes all the way back to a different word that means to cut, cut off, or to separate. And so we say, since it is related to this word, and this word means this, let's draw that meaning back into uh, the usage we find in the scriptures. And largely, this has gone unquestioned. The people who repeat these definitions aren't doing studies on what the word means or how it's used. I mean, this has been something that's surprisingly very little studied. And if you ask a linguist, a scholar, someone who knows language, about how words have meaning, here's what they'll tell you almost universally. Words themselves have no meaning. Like, there's, they're not a container of meaning that never changes, and they just walk around for their entire life with that same meaning. Words have meaning in the way they're used. And we all know this, because in our own lifetimes, words have changed meanings. I bet, I'm willing to bet, some of you said things when you were kids that you can't say now because the meaning of those words have changed. Just because a word is related to a different meaning doesn't mean it means the same thing. Um, Nice once meant ignorant. Now it means nice. Just because there's a relationship there doesn't mean we can always um, kind of of count on this. Um, So so there's, there's a problem with just the way we've arrived at this conclusion the way we should look for the, the, the meaning of a word is in its usage. That's the biggest problem, is when you look throughout the scriptures at how the word holy is used, it doesn't seem to be used 
to suggest separateness, cutoffness, moral purity. There's also a theological problem, which is if holiness is a description of God, if it's one of the primary descriptions of God, then it can't be something that depends on creation for its meaning. If God is holy in his essence, and to be holy means to be separate from something else, that means something else always has to exist. Does this make sense? Like God can't be angry in his essence because creation has to be around and doing bad things for God to be angry. In his essence, God has to be defined in relationship to himself. And so separateness doesn't quite meet this mark. Now, when you survey the use of the, the word holy in the scriptures, some things start to stand out to you. And there are scholars who have done this work. Um, a lot of times what happens is in the academic world, um, a consensus will be reached, and about 50 years later, it starts to really filter out into common use. I can't show you all the work for this math problem. I, if you'd like a lot of more technical information, I'd love to have that conversation with you. So trust that there's, there's, there's a big math equation behind this, right? But I just want to run through a survey with you, just real quick, okay? Um, the first thing we can see is usually when holy shows up, it refers to something good, it's praiseworthy, and it refers to something that's reassuring. It gives comfort to someone who's doubting. Or it's, it's, a, it's a sense of a promise for something God will do in the future. Psalm 22 is a, is a good example of this. Um, in Psalm 22, Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 on the cross. It reads like this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. You feel his anguish here? God disappeared, he's gone. What, what, what's happening? In verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And he goes on to say, you'll deliver me as well. The way I was brought up, holiness would not be what gives me comfort when I thought God had forsaken me. But David goes to God's holiness and says, this is how I know you've, you've delivered in the past and you'll deliver me Again, if you were to keep going through the Psalms, you'll find that this is a repeated refrain. This is a, a best hit. This is a classic in the Psalms. Sing praises to the Lord, give thanks to his holy name. Our hearts glad is him because we trust in his holy name. Rejoice in the Lord, give thanks to his holy name. Sing to the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous thing. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, exalt the Lord. Worship, holy is he, exalt the world. Worship, holy is he. This is repeated three times in Psalm 99. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is in me, bless his holy name. Glory in his holy name. Psalm 145, 21. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord. Let all the flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. It's something good. It's something reassuring. And then it seems to be something related to God's devotion and commitment to justice and righteousness. I think Isaiah is actually a good case study in this. Isaiah 6 is the very famous passage where God shows up, the angels say, holy, holy, holy. And if you remember, Isaiah reacts with fear. And we're kind of like, okay, that seems to be the classic definition, the classic way of looking at it. God's holiness is revealed, and Isaiah's like, oh no. And he steps away. 
But if you look at the context of Isaiah, it actually is almost the clearest way to see what holiness actually represents. Um, Isaiah, the first five chapters are largely about the judgment coming on Israel and Judah because they have been doing wrong things, saying wrong things, challenging God's justice. Um, And in Isaiah 5.16, it says this, Humanity will be humbled, mankind will be brought low, the eyes of the prideful will be brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself in righteousness. The word holy is actually used twice there in the Hebrew. The holy God shows his holiness in his righteousness. The idea, it seems, is devotion. Peter Gentry is one scholar who has argued this um, with very close readings of the word. Um, It it seems that um, holiness, when it's applied to God and his people, means more dedicated or devoted than it does separated or cut off from. Um, The basic meaning here is devotedness, not separateness, otherness, or moral purity. Now, it always operates as well within the context of a covenantal relationship, salvation. It's God's devotedness to his people. Now, it's not completely unrelated to moral purity. I mean, we read this in Leviticus, right? Be holy for I am holy, and then it lists off all the moral things you should be doing. Here's how we should maybe perhaps view holiness, though. Purity is the result of holiness, not the definition of holiness. Let's, let's play that out. If, if holiness is devotion and, and God is ultimately holy, he's devoted to his people, he's devoted to righteousness and justice in the world, he's devoted to the poor and the sojourner and the blind and the deaf, and he calls his people to be devoted back to him, then it's first their love and commitment to God that results in them obeying these commands, acting like God. Purity is a part of the equation. Obedience is a part of the equation. But it's more the result of holiness than the definition. Perhaps this is why the scriptures celebrate God's holiness. Why they cite it to themselves when they're worried or scared or doubtful. They remind each other, God is holy. Holiness is not the opposite of God's love. It's an expression of God's love. As all character traits of God are. When God's sad, it's because of the love God has for creation. When God's angry, it's because of the love God has for creation. His holiness is his commitment to his love working itself out in creation. And like everything, when it comes to the Christian faith, Jesus should be our example. So if we want to know anything about God, what is God like? What's the holiness of God like? We should ask ourselves, what was Jesus' holiness like? Jesus is the concrete embodiment of God's holiness. And then in a weird paradox that is our faith, Jesus is at the same time the perfect example of humanity. So if we wonder, what is the perfect response being holy because God's holy? It would also be Jesus. He's the perfect embodiment of that. In a weird way, the person of Jesus stands like in the middle of Leviticus 19.2 as both the one who is holy and the one who shows us what holiness looks like in response. And we look at Jesus' life and we look at his holiness and here's what we find. People describe Jesus' holiness in the Gospels like this. It's contagious. 
Jesus' devotion to the Father, and likewise the causes of the Father, righteousness and justice, these rub off on other people. Other people don't rub off on it. It's, it's, it's more catchable than these other things. It's attractive. People, people liked Jesus, especially the ones who were doing the wrong things. Think about how opposite this is to how Christians are perceived. Against things, judgmental and hypocritical. These are just not things that people thought about Jesus. It was the religious people who were upset with Jesus. But the ones who were doing all the wrong things, those are the ones that Jesus was like, hey, come to Piata with me after service. Let's be friends. Shameless plug. Yeah, I don't want to be alone. Contagious, attractive. Jesus has a, let me say, dynamic holiness or engaging, proactive holiness. His holiness is not a negative thing. His holiness is not defined or characterized by what he's not associated with, with what he's not in favor of, and what he doesn't appreciate or like. It's associated with what he does. Be holy for I am holy. What if you and I have misread holiness use it to prop up our own pride and instead of being known for what we're against the very concept of holiness itself should make us be known for what we're for let's be more specific for who we're for that seems to be holiness it's our devotion to Jesus It's it's us reciprocating his commitment to us. And then as a result, as an outpouring, our commitment to his righteousness, to his kingdom, to loving our neighbors as ourselves, to forgiving our enemies, to being generous. If you make holiness just purity itself, Christianity really turns into kind of just a moralistic philosophy. It's really just rules to go by. But in fact, our faith is a personal faith. Our faith is is much more about a relationship than it is about rules. And I don't say that in the cliche way. I know that that sounds really cliche, right? We don't believe that there are certain rules. We don't believe that there are certain ideas. We believe in people. We believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because of our belief and relationship and faith in those people, we act in certain ways and are led to act in certain ways. And to be holy is to be devoted in such a way that, that we, like God, become committed to what is good and true and right. We act on it. We're known for it. We're proactive about it. Holiness is, in a sense, what I've felt this morning. And the mom showed up to our congregation. I might have written a post on online about how I'm against violence towards Jewish people, towards Muslim people. And I'm 
probably would have sat back and felt somewhat satisfied. But perhaps holiness should make me think, what should I do about it? Where should I go? Who should I talk to? What's the, what's the proactive action here? Not, not just what am I against, what am I separating myself from? And man, if we understood that, if, if we got that down to the core of our being, what would change? How much would change? Perhaps our ministries and our impacts would look more like the impact and ministry of, of Jesus himself. The good news is that God is holy, and it's a good news that God has called us to holiness. And when we face doubts, when we're persecuted, when we're unsure, we can rely on God's holiness. And when we ask ourselves, in the world that seems upside down, seems just so backwards and twisted sometimes, how should we be acting? The answer is the same, in a holy manner. In a manner devoted to the Lord. In a manner committed to pursuing justice and righteousness, truth and mercy and grace in every situation, to all people, at all times.